Hello and welcome to part two of this special three-part GradCast episode series where we continue to talk to Western graduate students about how COVID-19 has impacted their research since lockdown in March. In this episode, hosts Elizabeth Moeller and Gavin Talavetti talk with PhD student Anna Sewer and recent postdoctorate Yo Sewer. All right, you're listening to GradCast. Today we have a special episode. We're talking all things COVID and how that's impacted research. We're really lucky off the top today, our guest, Anna Sway. No stranger to GradCast, but Anna has a really exciting project that she's gonna to talk to us about. So Anna, I'm gonna turn it over to you. Give us the lowdown on your project. Thanks, Liz. Uh, so my project actually started before uh, COVID happened. Um, and we were looking at smartphone-related anxiety, specifically in post-secondary students. So uh, we asked a lot of Western students how uh, dependent on their phones they were and how anxious they were if they couldn't reach their phones um, in a more nuanced way than that, but that was um, the gist of it. And then when the lockdown happened, uh, we had this incredible opportunity, this natural experiment where people started using their phones so much more than they were before because people were ordering food, people were uh, using TikTok, Instagram, WhatsApp, a lot more. People couldn't go see their friends or family, so they were FaceTiming each other. So we had everyone just using their phones so much more and we wanted to see how that would impact their smartphone-related anxiety. Hmm. You know, it's interesting to me, I'm thinking about my own life since COVID started, and absolutely, my smartphone is never more than about a foot away, and you're right, there's a lot of ordering of Uber Eats or laundry services or groceries, whatever that might be. So tell us a little bit about kind of what some of your anticipated uh, thinkings were or thoughts were around what you were maybe expecting to find, given this new world we're in. So everyone on the project kind of agreed that because everyone was using their phones more, everyone would get like more attached to their phones and they would be a lot more anxious that they couldn't use their phone because now they were relying um, on this device for everything, like you said, for groceries, um, for socializing, for everything. And so we were like going into this thinking, okay, we know, we know what, this is, what the data is going to look like. Um, and that wasn't the case <laughs> at all. It's, uh, it's interesting. Why, I guess the two-parter two here, why do you think that wasn't the case? And tell us what you actually did find. So what we did actually find is that there was absolutely no change between smartphone addiction and like smartphone related anxiety from before COVID to during the lockdown. In fact, some of our um, numbers, so our means, mean scores uh, didn't change at all. They were identical. And in part, it could be because our sample was slightly different. Um, a lot of students went home and they weren't checking their Western email. And so they weren't aware that our study was happening. Uh, but overall, our samples were fairly similar. The reason we truly think uh, the smartphone addiction and the anxiety hasn't gone up is because 
people weren't actually perceiving themselves as being so reliant on their phones. This was rather like a normal extension of their daily life. Um, and so this behavior wasn't something out of the ordinary for them. They were already using their phones quite a bit for pretty much everything in their lives and they continued to do so, maybe to a greater extent, but to them it was still some variation of the norm. So you mentioned that you know people didn't perceive that they were more addicted and, and that kind of the results didn't sort of balloon as COVID ballooned. Do you think that perhaps one of the reasons for uh, this, this plateau might also be that with COVID people are becoming a little bit more uh, going outdoors more, doing doing more things in nature, um, maybe trying to disengage a little bit. I know that that's certainly some uh, something that I've seen happening. It's interesting uh, you bring this up because if we look at data coming from the individual companies and the individual apps like WhatsApp, Instagram, Facebook, uh, there's a surge of usage. So. Uh, we actually see almost in real time that usage has gone up by sometimes up to like 76%, 125% uh, for Facebook. So people are definitely using their phones more. Uh, they just don't seem to really feel conflicted or bad about it. And, and I guess in some ways, maybe it's a good thing because if they're using their phones, like we've said, to connect through Facebook, WhatsApp, etc., it means they're not connecting in person and we're avoiding those large gatherings, which we've been asked to do. Exactly. And this actually leads to one of sort of uh, thoughts that we had as we were looking at the data is that maybe our dependence on smartphones isn't an addiction at all. Maybe it's not necessarily a bad thing at all. It's just a new way of communicating. Our lives are changing and the way that we conduct ourselves is changing. And uh, for example, nobody says that people are addicted to their cars, right? Mm -hmm. Cars have just become integrated into daily life and people rely on them for groceries, and to get to work. So maybe smartphones are kind of similar to cars where now we rely on them to connect with people that are a couple of cities away from us. We rely on them to get groceries or to get dinner, right? You've mentioned something that I wanna pick up on. You mentioned work. Um, and I thought about this as you were mentioning kind of how we are, are, are cars are what we used to we used to use to get to work, but now we're all working from home. And so do you think that um, even though the, the smartphone use has sort of stayed the same or, or um, not risen at least, do you think part of the reason that some of these apps are seeing an increase in usage is people are working from home, telecommuting? Some of the, sorry, my dogs are fighting in the background. <laughs> No worries. One of the joys of working from home, uh, definitely. I think for me personally, I've started using Instagram, using in the very loose sense, scrolling through Instagram uh, quite a bit since we started working from home because it's simply there. And <laughs> even when I'm in meetings, I'm ashamed to say this, but even when I'm in a Zoom meeting, uh, I have the opportunity to sometimes sneak a peek at Facebook or Instagram or some messages coming in. Whereas if this was done in person, there would be like no way I could do that. Mm -hmm. 
Absolutely. And I think about myself, uh, I've used WhatsApp for a couple of meetings. So I know people now are working at home. There's, there's less uh, reliance, of course, on going into an office. So we're telecommuting and maybe things like WhatsApp and to some extent, perhaps even Facebook Messenger. I'm wondering if those are apps now used in the work world, which is why we're kind of seeing that increase in data from those apps. I think you're right. I've definitely used uh, Facebook Messenger to uh, contact the PIs on a few projects because it was just faster that way. I think another reason is that since we are working from home, there isn't such a clear end of the workday. And so when people are receiving emails at, you know, 10 o'clock at night, they're much more willing to answer them, especially if they're coming through notifications on their phones and work just tends to spill over into leisure time. Yeah, absolutely. You've talked a little bit about uh, your research. Why did you want to get involved with this project? What was sort of the impetus for you jumping on board and, and uh, looking at this trend of smartphone addiction? I think it was my own usage. It was seeing the number uh, of hours spent on social media apps on my phone and sort of seeing that number climb higher and higher and higher and feeling like I couldn't leave my phone, you know, screen down at any point that made me think this can't be normal. Like most people can't be feeling this way. Uh, you know, having these phantom vibrations when you have your phone in your purse, um, or, you know, thinking you're getting notifications when you're really not. And so I started looking into the literature and I noticed that uh, most studies looking at smartphone addiction are actually not from North America. Hmm. And so, yeah, it, they're from Asia. There are a few from the Middle East and a few from Europe, but especially in Canada, there wasn't a single study. And so there was this opportunity to kind of be the first and see whether smartphone addiction, smartphone related anxiety was an issue specifically in post-secondary students because they are the largest consumer base. Um, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, you mentioned smartphone anxiety. So would, would that be the idea that if you don't have your phone or your Apple Watch or your Echo Dot that you're feeling this sort of panic or anxiousness? I certainly know that's how I feel if the internet's down for even an hour at my place. <laughs> Yes, uh, that's exactly right. So the fancy word for smartphone related anxiety is nomophobia. And it's the phobia of either not having service on your phone or not having access to your phone. And what you described is a facet of nomophobia, which is losing connectedness. And people usually experience anxiety related to losing connectedness when they don't have service or their data is not working. And so they feel that someone might be contacting them and they won't be able to receive the message. And why do you think that that is? Why do you think we're feeling that anxiety? <laughs> Embracing, oh, it's kind of nice not to be contacted for now too. Well, that's the million dollar question, isn't it? I think in my personal opinion is because uh, we have created a culture where we demand instantaneous gratification. And whether it's asking something of our friends, we expect them to reply right away. Or if we're asking something from our coworkers, we're asking them to complete a task. 
uh, there's the expectation that it will be done immediately. And when we create this expectation and we hold it for long enough, it becomes the norm. I know for myself, if I receive an email and it doesn't matter what the time is, as long as it takes less than five minutes to reply to it, I will drop everything and I will reply to the email, even if it's outside of the work hours. Don't get an Apple watch because then it's like right on your wrist. <laughs> I survived. I actually tried using an Apple watch because that's the kind of person I am. And I survived a day and my anxiety just skyrocketed because oh. I was I was getting notifications, but I was away from my computer. So I couldn't reply to the email like extensively. And I couldn't deal with that dissonance knowing that somebody asked me to do something and not being able to complete the task right away. <laughs> Absolutely. So, I mean, takeaways, what are you hoping are some implications for the findings, some takeaways from this really important and frankly, very timely research? So the plan is to actually repeat the exact same questionnaire uh, six months after the physical distancing kind of guidelines and mandates have been lifted to see if people will return back to the pre-COVID levels. So to see if uh, the way we use our phones and the way we communicate is gonna go back to our pre-COVID normal, uh, whatever it was. Right. I, yes, so um, that's coming in January. <laughs> so stay tuned for that. I certainly will. This is really exciting, uh, Anna. Thank you so much for sharing your research with us today and a little bit about your interest in homophobia. That's a new one for me. You've been listening to Grindcast. All right, and welcome back to Gradcast, where we are now joined with Yoa. How are you doing today? I'm great. How are you guys doing? We're good. I'm glad you're here. Thanks yeah, doing for chatting with us today. Yeah, no problem. Yeah, I'm doing pretty good. So um, how, so with this episode, since we are talking about how COVID has affected our work and your situation's a bit different from everyone else, like you, you were a grad student, but you have recently become a postdoc. That's right. Yeah. So I uh, defended my doctorate um, at the end of August of this year. And then I've had to kind of uh, maneuver my way into this postdoc position that's starting in January uh, that's out on the west coast and so there's definitely been some logistics uh, and some changes that have happened due to COVID uh, that I'd be happy to talk about. Yeah tell us about that experience of sort of deciding you know first of all the applying and then the waiting and the whole idea behind you know whether you're going to go or not and how COVID sort of wreaked havoc or didn't with that whole process. Mm, no, great question. So um, I'm sure as a lot of doctoral students know, uh, the postdoc application process starts, you know, well in advance of you defending your doctorate. And so, you know, in September of last year, I started looking into and applying to uh, these different postdoc opportunities with professors that I had gone in touch with. And one of them was in Australia, actually. And so that was a tri-council one. And then the other one I applied to was with a professor out at the University of Victoria. And so, you know, I had applied to these things, January rolls around, and then we're approaching into March and it's kind of starting to get a little bit dicey with, you know, COVID and restrictions. And I eventually, you know, things start to shut down and um, I'm starting to wonder to myself, like, even if I do end up being able to get 
one of these postdocs out in Australia or even out West, am I going to be able to go there? You know, so that was a little bit um, of an unknown situation. Um, and then I had talked a little bit more with the professor at UVic and we had just chatted about writing a different postdoc. So this one was a MyTax and, you know, it's an industry funded postdoc. So we're, um, we're working with, you know, participation, um, mm. sort of not-for-profit in Canada. And yeah, so we had discussed like the logistics of, you know, how do we start that if we want to do that? And, you know, originally we had intended on starting it in September, um, but it's the current situation is we've decided to postpone it to January. Um, and actually the first four months of that my tax, I'll actually still be here in Ontario. Um, so one of the interesting things about the COVID situation I found is that a lot of organizations and a lot of universities have been more accommodating as far as distance sort of learning, distance uh, work. And so being, you know, where previously living here for four months and doing my postdoc across the country might've been a little bit maybe uh, less uh, acceptable. I feel like now much more so it's very understandable, you know, um, mm -hmm. my postdoc supervisor is all but willing to accommodate um, me spending four months here and then going over there. So that's definitely changed, um, I think for the better in a way, but. Why do you say that, that it's changed for the better? I mean, when you're able to do some of this work distance, um, it makes the process a lot, when one, it's, it's a lot logistically less um, stressful. So mm -hmm. I don't have to like go over there first to start things off. I can get some of the groundwork started here and then kind of hit the ground running when I do move over there. Um, but also I feel like it's a lot more accommodating. So, you know, not just for me, but for other individuals who may be starting a postdoc or starting some position, you know, if they're in a, maybe financially or, you know, for maybe health concerns, not able to go to wherever they need to go um, to complete this work, they don't necessarily have to. A lot of the work can just be done where they're comfortable. Mm -hmm. it's, it's an interesting time to be making plans and trying to think about how those plans are gonna actually unfold. What is something maybe you've, learn through this whole process of trying to plan, apply, decide where you're going to live, where you're, where you're going to study? Mm -hmm. No, fantastic question. Um, and you're totally right in that things are kind of, uh, we, everyone says we live in these, you know, quote unquote, unprecedented times, right? But in a way, it's true. Like, I think the biggest thing is just being adaptable, mm -hmm. right? being able to kind of take in the situation as it comes and, you know, not necessarily get really tied down to one idea of what a particular, you know, doctorate or postdoc or whatever it is, position happens to look like. Um, because, you know, the world is changing kind of, you know, week by week. I mean, you know, the American election is like next week. So the world's going to yeah. change yet again. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. So just being adaptable, I would say. Yeah. So I guess when, when you were trying to adapt to the very unprepared situation the world was for the world, what was probably the biggest obstacle you had to face at least for you personally what do you think was the hardest thing you had to adapt to I'm guessing the little thinking about location must have been pretty pretty big yeah definitely like logistics uh trying to figure out you know how a move is going to work during you know a time of travel restrictions and health concerns um, but also I think financially it's been interesting because you know as much as I do have this position that is starting in January 
Um, in the meantime, I'm more or less unemployed, uh, still doing a lot of research, you know, quote unquote, but uh, certainly not the income is, is something that I'm uh, cognizant of and, and just trying to make sure that I can manage um, so that I can afford to move out there. Yeah. You know, we're, we're hearing in these times uh, when the labs closed and folks whose research was reliant on labs were kind of stuck at home doing maybe writing up findings or lit reviews, um, that the things really took a hit. Has that been the case for you in terms of your research productivity? Um, <laughs> honestly, and it, sometimes I feel like I'm a bit of a, a black sheep for saying this, but I, I gotta say the, the pandemic has been really good for my research. Um, mm -hmm. and I, I say that because I almost, my research program deals with, you know, physical activity and deals with behavior change and the pandemic has really offered what has been a worldwide national or natural experiment in a way. And so being able to look at these, some of these interesting questions, like, you know, how are people adapting their physical activity? You know, what's happening these physical activity rates, but also looking at other things like, you know, behavior change that's happening. Um, it's really spawned a lot of projects and it's also um, just been a really relevant area for obvious reasons. Um, and so that has kind of, helped keep me afloat as far as my research productivity throughout this time. Um, I, I hesitate in calling COVID-19 a good thing because I think, you know, overall, I don't think anyone would agree that it is. Um, mm -hmm. But in this specific context, like I've, I've been fortunate to be, have the opportunity and the collaborators to be able to capitalize on this kind of, um, like I said, natural sort of experiment. So in that way, you know, I guess it's good. <laughs> Yeah, it is great when you have um, uh, collaborators and supervisors who are quite understanding about the entire situation. Mm -hmm. So we're trying to, I say, we'll be, if we go towards like motivation for like COVID does make it hard to stay focused on work. We're easily distracted now because there's a lot of things we used to do that we just can't mm -hmm. at least not do the same way that we could maybe a year ago. Mm -hmm. So what's probably been the number one thing you've been able to do to keep yourself motivated given the situation that you found yourself in? Yeah, no, again, another great question. Um, as from the period of March until August, it was defending because I still had to write all of my thesis, all of my dissertation together um, so that I could you know, defend it um, hope and still on time, which was actually another source of sort of stress, right? Just knowing, you know, I'm not, I'm not gonna be able to defend in person which has kind of been my expectation for the last three years, three and a half years. So what's that gonna look like? Um, you know, am I gonna be able to defend with the sort of research that I have? One of the projects that um, was funded and was part of my research program, we didn't end up having you know, the time to run because obviously we need human participants um, and the university is more or less shut down for that kind of thing. And so it, that more or less was motivating. Um, that in addition to the fact that postdoc applications, you know, continue well into sort of September and October. And so really it's deadlines it, to distill it down to one answer. It's kind of just been uh, deadlines. Um, there is certainly an amount of um, sort of internal motivation that I have, you know, to want to still succeed and to do well. Um, but I, I will absolutely agree with you in that it has been, there have certainly been moments where I've like stopped and just been like, wow, I'm burning out. I am feeling not very motivated. I um, really should, I'm evaluating, you know, why I'm doing what I'm doing and how I'm working as hard as I'm working. 
Um, so yeah, it's, it's not always been this nice, like, yeah, hoorah, let's go sort of thing. Do you think because of COVID, you mentioned that your research really looks at physical activity and participation. Hmm. Do you think because of COVID people are more active because we're encouraged to, of course, socially distance, but to get outdoors, to do those hikes in nature? What do you think? It's, so it's a really interesting um, point you raise. I would say that it depends on who you ask. As a whole, um, given that for the most part, physical activity is for many people already a difficult behavior to try and perform. It depends on a lot of factors. You know, one is like how well you think you can do it. Um, two is the environment in which you present yourself in um, and the opportunity that you gave yourself to be physically active. For a lot of us, this has meant, you know, being at home predominantly. And some people I think have turned to these online fitness videos as kind of a way to um, still stay physically active. And uh, one of the projects that we had run with my supervisor uh, at West, my postdoc supervisor, is we looked at these online fitness videos and we were seeing, okay, uh, there's obviously this the surgence of viewership and engagement with these videos closer to the beginning of the pandemic, sort of around March. But what does the pattern of engagement look like over the course of the summer, right? Like are people watching these consistently or what does that pattern look like? And when we looked at it, we found that within the first week, that's usually when you saw, regardless of the channel, regardless of you know, the type of video, that's when you had the most viewership and the most engagement. And then very quickly within the next week, you had this massive drop in engagement. So we're talking views, likes, comments on videos, new videos. Um, and so more or less, we see the same uh, principle happening with online videos that we do with sort of uh, new gym goers, where people are really motivated at first, um, but without any sort of external motivational strategies or behavioral strategies, um, people just drop off very, very quickly. Now, that being said, I was also reading an interesting article the other day in The Guardian talking about how some people have really thrived and flourished as far as physical activity goes under the pandemic. Um, for many, because it is a very stressful situation or, or event, um, it's kind of akin to sometimes trauma related to health gives us new motivation to be more uh, health centric, right? And so it's talking about these people who, you know, realized that they were eating very poorly and they, you know, were very concerned about their health all of a sudden. It was very salient to them. And so they were being, you know, started becoming physically active and they were using these resources available to them to be more physically active. Um, and so while they, they exist, I think that those are more few and far between than the average, which is you're at home. Why not sit down on the couch and watch Netflix? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I imagine that Netflix probably got a boost in views and sales ever since. They did. Yeah, they actually <laughs> did. Yeah. <laughs> and then with Disney Plus that came out, Amazon Prime. Oh, yeah. Mm. yeah, all the streaming Cause, services. Because I think speaking of Disney Plus, because I'm pretty sure today the Mandalorian season two premiered. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. There's probably going to be a lot of new baby I mean, coming out. I, I was a big fan of uh, a lot of these streaming services. I, liked, I was watching The Boys on Amazon Prime when it was coming out. That was really fun. I really like that show. <laughs> uh, I've, got, I've got a friend who was obsessed. He's obsessed with the show. I haven't seen it but yet. It's but good. I, I mean, it's it good. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, but 
Yo, I wanted to thank you again for coming on and talking about your experience from a postdoc perspective as well, which I think would be yeah, okay. pretty good for graduate students listening that are probably close to defending or maybe have also started a postdoc when this all happened. So I hope they can learn something from your experience. Yeah, I hope so as well. Thanks for having me. And the best of luck. Thank you again. <laughs>